to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from our childhood that the other has not read. And then we talk about them. And, uh, you know, sometimes sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Spoiler alert. This time it's great. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I'm Brandon. I'm Ren. And uh, this episode is one of my picks. We're talking about The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. Uh, technically the first novel in the robot series, although iRobot did come first. Uh, so we have a rule with each other while we're reading these books that we're not allowed to talk with each other about them. Right. So aside from a little bit of like griping with each other about how autocorrect kept misspelling the characters' names on me, I've withheld my opinions. <laughs> yeah, because we want to actually have things to say when we're recording. I really liked this book. Cool. I've never read any Asimov, and now I kind of want to go devour all of it. Cool. I think, especially the robot stuff, I think you would enjoy. Um I guess before we get into this too much, uh, customarily we'll give some content warnings if there's anything we feel like we ought to, to say. Um, oh yeah, there's definitely some content warnings though. This was, what, 1950-something? 53. Hmm. Um, so uh, the, the, the nature of the book does deal with uh, various kinds of prejudice. Um, not strictly racism, but like it's basically racism as well as some classism and some mentions of eugenics and I'm, I'm glad you wrote eugenics down because i have eugenics just like underlined with one of those emojis that's like the face being sick yeah yeah it's... I've, I've been taking notes on my phone so <laughs> um do you think there's anything i've missed racism classism eugenics racism classism eugenics yep yep good old good old uh the big three. Fifties sci-fi cocktail. <laughs> the, the books we've previously read so far have all been books that were like written for young readers um, of some sort or other. Um, this is our sort of first foray into a book that was not written with a younger audience in mind. Not that it's a difficult book, but like Asimov was not writing YA specifically right um but it is a book that i read as a kid it's probably one of the first like quote adult novels that i ever read um i don't remember for sure if it was the first but it was probably one of the first um because as as we had talked about previously particularly with my my hardy boys pick a couple episodes ago um a lot of the stuff that i got into early on were mysteries and sci-fi and so this book is a sci-fi mystery so it just seemed like a (laughs) logical uh path i don't feel like that it would have been difficult for a a kid to read like i'm trying to think back on it and i don't remember there being any particularly like difficult vocabulary or anything yeah it's not a difficult book right it's not it's not like super dense or explicit or anything like that. Um, yeah, I don't think there was actually a whole lot of like cursing unless you 
count the like 20 times he says Jehoshaphat, a curse word. Uh, I do remember this book being the first and possibly only time that I've ever seen Jehoshaphat spelled out. <laughs> Actually, now's a good time to point out for for the majority of these books, I have been reading them in paper version. Uh, this book, I do have a paper copy right here, but I only actually read a couple of chapters of it in the paper version. I uh, um, got myself into a little health situation and it was easier to just listen to it on audiobook. So I actually don't know how Jehoshaphat is spelled. <laughs> I will say Audible's version of this has the best narrator. He does voices. His his uh, Daniil voice is amazing. It's it was it was a treat. Oh. I'm very pleased that I decided to listen <laughs> to this. Cool. It's like a little radio drama. It's great. Yeah. Right. So uh, my grandparents are big readers and always had been, and were thrilled to start to give me books as. I was like looking for more things to read. Um, and my granddad, uh, uh, granddad Wayne, he was also a big sci-fi reader. Um, he was the source of a lot of the sci-fi novels that I would read in my, in my younger years, uh, because those were, the things he read and enjoyed and um so he was the one who turned me onto the robot series i robot is technically a fix-up novel is what it's called but i it's a short story collection you don't need the context uh but they are all in the same setting anyhow <laughs> uh so the caves of steel is a sci-fi mystery uh, set thousands of years from now it's it's doesn't give a specific year but it's thousands of years from now when much of humanity lives inside big arcologies because earth is has just sort of been turned into this nebulous just manufactory wasteland uh and nobody wants to go outside um there are also colonies on other worlds but they're somewhat estranged from earth so we find ourselves in new york city which is not the same new york technically it's in the same location uh but it's in arcology and with uh with uh detective elijah bailey who people usually call Lige, but I it feels weird to say that <laughs> on my mouth. So I will <laughs> call him Bailey or Elijah. Yeah, I feel like he's often referred to as Bailey in the book. So he's a plainclothes detective and to his great dismay gets assigned to try to solve a murder in Spacetown, which is a little place outside of New York where spacers, that is, humans from other planets, live. Uh, and it's kind of sealed off, and Terrans like Bailey think spacers are super weird, and vice versa. So they just don't really like each other. Um, aside from the fact that, like, spacers live in the open sometimes, and it's weird, 
and also they have like better technology and, and stuff. Um, spacers also are much more welcoming of robots. Robots exist in the cities, but nobody likes them. Everybody hates them. Uh, humans resent them for taking over labor jobs. Um, these are not robots that really have much in the way of free will uh, in this context, etc. But um, they're a present but generally kind of distasteful part of, of Earth society. But the spacers are like robots are really a very accepted part of their of their stuff. Uh, they think robots are good. They their robots are, are more advanced, um, and because Space Town is concerned about like solving this murder of of, of a spacer in Space Town, they make Bailey work with a partner, a robot partner, R. Daniil Olivaw, who is a robot that, shockingly looks human he's built to look human unlike all of the other robots in the setting and he's a convincing enough human that generally people don't realize he's a robot unless they're told um and bailey is not a fan of this because he doesn't like robots and he doesn't like spacers and he doesn't like having to solve a spacer murder and he's pretty sure the spacers have uh, like invented this murder to give them an excuse to like militarily exert their influence on earth uh or, or something like that you know blame blame the murder on on a terry uh yeah he goes on a lot of wild accusations yeah. for the first half of the book yeah um yeah bailey's bailey's investigative style is less about gathering clues and more about accusing people and then seeing what happens. It's like he's playing Clue and doesn't realize that once you make an accusation, you're out of the game. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so Bailey and Daniil have to solve this, uh, this murder. And hopefully in a way that is agreeable to both the, the city and space town, uh, all the while dodging a possible medievalist plot of these, of these people who want to go back to the good old days of, of no robots and like not super technologically integrated lifestyles and stuff. Cause this is, this is a world where within the cities, within the arcology, you're always inside. Everything is like really strictly rationed. Everything kind of runs in this like very fine-tuned machine sort of way. Um, it's like it, it it teeters on like almost being dystopian because of like the class system and stuff, but it's more like a population problem thing. Yeah, like there's the overpopulation is significant enough that like this is the way that earth's population has determined they can support the number of people on earth you know um uh how how much food people have access to is controlled what kind of living facilities they have access to is controlled um you have to apply to be able to have children 
because the planet only can support so many people. Um, and your job kind of determines what things you have access to. There is mention of stores and stuff, but it's unclear to me like how much currency exists. Um, ultimately, that's not the point of the book. Uh, but this is the world they live in. Um, the world building, I thought, was was just tremendously well executed. Mm-hmm. They sort of like trickle it in throughout the entire book so it's not completely overwhelming it's not like the first two chapters are like this is the situation digest it all right now um i thought it was well done yeah the things that i that always stuck with me about this book were like the world that it was set in and um things like uh the personals which is to say the communal like bathrooms and stuff. Although it seemed to have other features and especially like how aggressively private everybody was about the personals. Like, okay. That part was funny because yeah, the whole thing is that like women talk to each other in the bathroom, but men pretend that the other men don't even exist. And I feel like that's true. I mean, I was talking to a friend after after a LARP game at one point, and there's, you know, male-female bathrooms split up um, that have, like, you know, shower facilities, because this is, at, like, a campsite. And uh, I was I said something like, oh, yeah, so-and-so said something to me while we were, you know, like, debriefing in the bathroom. And the friend was like, wait, you talk to each other in the bathroom? That's fucking weird. I was like, you don't talk to each other in the bathroom? What? <laughs> so so that part made me giggle because i was like yeah that's just a natural extension of how bathrooms work right now yeah yeah um and and bailey gets extremely scandalized when daniel is not just extremely quiet in the personals he does get real creepy in the bathroom though because he does that whole thing where he's like oh the robot has anatomy that the robot shouldn't have yeah, yeah, huh. he checks, he checks he, out Daniil a bit. He just Although, gets, gets a little creepy on Daniil. Yeah, and, and then and then that spawns, of course, another wild accusation. Um, You're not really a robot because you have a penis. Yeah. What kind of person would make a robot this human-like? <laughs> uh. Oh, but speaking about the world building, I maybe it's just because I'm dense. It didn't click to me that the spacers weren't just like space aliens for several chapters where it sort of like mm. spelled out actually no they're colonists that like human colonists that just came back humans have colonized like 50 planets like that that entire project has been going on for centuries i, I think there was some some hint of a military conflict that had happened at some point where the colonies kind of broke free from earth or maybe just Earth start, stopped caring. I, I don't recall it going super into detail about that because it w- was far in the past. Um, through Then through a variety of twists and turns, Bailey and Daniil uh, kind of become friends. I guess Daniil never disliked Bailey necessarily. I was going to say they like each other, but B- Daniil is always, is always pretty, pretty cooperative. Uh... 
and Bailey is just kind of like gruff human jerk. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a jerk, but he's less of a jerk to Daniil later on, eventually, and they they do ultimately solve the murder. We were like running out of chapters, and I was like, he is not even close. How is he going to solve this thing? <laughs> but, I, but I haven't read a lot of mysteries. <laughs> but uh, as it turns out, and, you know, spoilers, I guess, for the end of this book, uh, the, the culprit was, in fact, Bailey's boss, Commissioner Julius Enderby, who wanted to kill Daniil, but actually accidentally destroyed and killed uh, Daniil's creator because, of course, Daniil is made in the image of the guy who built him. That's just how robots go. So instead of killing Data, he killed Dr. Singh. Oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's what happens. He he went to uh, to this guy's place to kill the human, human-looking robot and um, didn't work out. And then put Bailey on the case because there was political pressure to do so, and he thought Bailey wouldn't ever consider him as a possible culprit because they were like old friends. And it's mentioned several times that in like Bailey's psych profile, he he has high marks for loyalty. Mm. Uh, so y- you know the 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 theory I suppose was he had to put somebody on the case. And Bailey would be really unlikely to turn against the department. And I think because Bailey so notably disliked the robot that worked in the police department and robots in general, that I think he just sort of figured that Bailey would sort of self-sabotage with how much he didn't like robots. Which, to be fair... He almost did. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he wasn't exactly (laughs) wrong. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah, there is a robot that works. I think there's actually implied to be several robots that work in the police department that uh, like took over really menial task jobs from like, I don't know, like like interns or whatever. And that they don't look like Daniil. And I desperately want to know what our Sammy looks like. They mentioned that like the head can hinge up. And he looks like metallic, but uh, I just really want to know. Yeah, the um, our Sammy and and all other robots in the book besides Daniil are obviously robots, even if they are humanoid. Um, they don't have like any real attempt to look human. It's very clear that they're robots. Um, and and Earth robots sound like they're also just kind of bulky relative to spacer robots. There's a lot of anxiety in Earth population about robots replacing humans in like labor roles to the point that there there have been riots and vandalisms and stuff in recent years. You know, people getting mad that they don't have their factory job anymore because robots took the jobs. Um <sighs> topical yeah there were actually a lot of parts of this that felt like it wouldn't have been weird if you had told me this book was from recently yeah especially like the germ medical stuff 
Yeah, because the spacers are um, extremely strict about hygiene. Uh, partially culturally, but, but partially because, like, many of them were not born on Earth. Uh, and just literally don't have the antibodies to combat a lot of Earth diseases that just, like, anyone who was born on Earth would have a lot of. Um, so to go to Space Town, you have to pass through this, like, extremely rigorous um disinfectant protocol and that just really made some terrans mad like to the point where there were riots because of it because you know our body our choice or something yeah yeah they were they were extremely upset that they had to possibly take a shower before going into space town even though going into space town without taking a shower means that you could quite possibly kill multiple people who you infected with a flu they have no antibodies for. Yeah. They were, they were, you know, the anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Anti-maskers. Ugh. Asimov was very, I think, keenly aware of the nature of humans. Uh, That's sort of where robots came from, literary-wise. Like, the first robot story is dealing with some of those uh ideas um the the word robot comes from a play uh from the early 20th century named r-u-r which stands for rossum's universal robots it's um by carl kapek uh, who i think was czech And, and the word robot uh just comes from the czech word robota which means forced labor. And uh, in in that play, the whole thing is like this, this industrialist creates artificial people uh, so that the, these artificial people, these robots can um, do all of the work and humans can just like live this life of leisure henceforth and um, the robots eventually destroy the humans. Because they didn't like being slaves, you know. Uh, so that's that's the source of the word robot. So I I wanted to know a couple of things about robot books in general. Is Asimov sort of the first or one of the first people that starts writing about you know the like conflict of of humans versus robots? And also, is he the first person that wrote about the concept of the positronic brain? Uh, the positronic brain is uh, Asimov's creation, I believe. Um, Asimov's robot stories, in general, add a lot of things that many other things use, just as as like a point of normalcy with robots. So, pos- the positronic brain appears in lots of things um, as a concept. Yeah, I mean, like harkening back to my joke earlier about data. Yeah, data is absolutely, I. I wouldn't be all that surprised if Data is on some level outright based on Daniil. Well, um, yeah, like I was reading and, and thinking like, gosh, this guy is so Data-like. Yeah. I don't recall ever seeing anybody like explicitly say that about Data, but like they're very similar. Um, and certainly the positronic brain thing is is from Asimov. And the whole, you know, being made in the the form of your creator, like... I love you, Star Trek, but you, you, 
that's you 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 just took Asimov's plot. <laughs> well, uh, a lot a lot of things uh, that you use robots borrow from Asimov because the uh, the three laws of robotics are also um, pretty common to see in stuff about robots. Oh yeah, I really wish they had said the other the other laws because they only talked about law one, but they implied that there were like other laws. Uh, and I was waiting for them to explain other laws. They do give all three, I think, at one point in the story, but the three laws are much more prevalent in iRobot. And the three laws are, uh, first law, a robot cannot harm a human or, through an action, allow a human to come to harm. Uh, the second law is a robot must follow orders uh, given by a human unless that would contradict the first law. So you can't tell a robot to kill somebody. And you could, it just wouldn't listen. Um, and the third law is a robot will attempt to preserve itself as long as that does not conflict with the first or second laws. Oh, okay. I don't remember um, them outright saying the second two, but now I understand. I think there's one point where... where um, Bailey and Daniil are kind of debating whether or not a robot could have been involved in the crime. The first law is, of course, the most pertinent one because that's the one that prevents a robot from being the murderer, right? Um, and there's also a few times that Daniil does things that, like, come off as threatening. Um... Like during a near riot at a at a shoe store early on, he pulls his blaster and threatens to shoot the the protesters if they don't back off. Um, and and Bailey is like, "Well, what, how how could you do that if you had the first law?" And Dean was like, "Well, the blaster wasn't charged. You know, I wouldn't have fired. I couldn't have fired." And the second law ultimately is kind of important because um the way the way that enderby pulls off his crime is uh you know you can't just walk into space town carrying a blaster they notice uh and the only way to get into space town without going through their checkpoint is to go outside which doesn't sound like a big deal but petrifies literally everyone who is in the city like the idea of going cross-country unprotected just sounds everybody's like you could you just couldn't do it who would possibly do that um and and so bailey writes off the notion that somebody could have left the city and gone overland into space town um so what what happened is enderby told our sammy to go overland bring him a gun and then leave with it again and sammy had to because he, he was told you know the and, and of course enderby didn't tell him why right he just said hey our sammy take this take this route bring it to me and then hey our sammy take this go back tell no one so yeah, those are those are the laws of robotics. Uh, they are prevalent in pretty much all of Asimov's robot stories, um, and many f 
fictional worlds that have robots in them adopt these laws anyway. Uh, you know. As far as whether or not Asimov was the first to write about robots in this manner, I'm not sure. Um, he certainly was probably the most influential. But I don't know if he was first. Um, Asimov, in addition to the postratic brain, Asimov, I think, is also the person who coined the word robotics, oh. for example. Wow, damn. Um... But like it's it's Asimov's influence on robots and the concept of robots, both literary and scientific, is is pretty huge. Yeah. So when when do you think the last time was you read this? Um it was probably around 15 years ago, I think. Okay, cool. I was not sure if it was something that you sort of like regularly read or. No, I, I've, I've read it twice before the, the first time I ever read it. And then um, I reread it on a cruise. My family took, uh, which was while I was in college, it was over a Christmas break. So I wasn't like at college at the time I was on a boat, but um I can't remember exactly what year that was, but it was it was when I was in college, so that would have been, yeah, I, I would guess two thousand seven or so. Cool, cool. So, what was it like reading it again? Uh, I mean, I still I still really enjoy it, um, and there were a lot of things that I had forgotten, a lot of, a lot of little bits and pieces and and interactions that I really enjoyed, and uh, you know. Certainly the last time I read it, it didn't feel as uh, timely as it does now. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it was, it was interesting to see how many things feel like they're talking about today, right? Um, or feel at least relevant today. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm... I imagine when Asimov was writing this, there was some anxiety about automation replacing people, right? Because uh, that that had been that had been a, an anxiety that had been building throughout the Industrial Revolution, right? Um, you know, even going back to things like the assembly line. Uh, and by the fifties, there were certainly at least the ideas of even greater automation maybe someday being possible. Um, so, you know, I don't think he was entirely just like predicting things. I, I'm sure he was writing about things that were very real uh, for, for at least American culture at the time. But there are things that have come around again or, or have spiked again, I suppose, in more recent years, I think. <laughs> I, I i i wish i'd come across this book when i was younger i i tried to read a lot of sort of like older sci-fi um when i was you know just sort of like 
voraciously reading everything I could get my hands on. But I think the first couple of things that I encountered were like 70s and 80s sci-fi that was just incredibly sexist. And and there's a little bit of light sexism, I would say, in this book. Like the women, the few of them that there are, are portrayed as being kind of very silly and emotional. Mm-hmm. But it's not as overt, like gross, as some of the early sci-fi that I tried to get into. Yeah, and I feel like this this would have been much more accessible to me. Yeah, would have got me into that, sci-fi a little bit sooner. That makes sense. Asimov. Um, here's the thing about Asimov. Asimov was unfortunately a uh, well-known sexual harasser. Um, he even kind of adopted at his personal brand being like the dirty old man in sci-fi. Yeah. Not great. Uh, He did, however, and this is... I'm not saying he's right, but... He did consider himself a feminist insofar as he thought he thought that the notion that like the uh, that like women belong in the home doing child raising etc was archaic and bad um, and although there weren't really any uh, super empowered women in this book, uh, there are some women in Asimov's fiction, probably most notably Susan Calvin, who's a recurring character in the robot stories um, as like one of the pioneers of robots in his setting, um, who are like competent people. Granted, he does still also talk about them in a sense that's kind of unkind sometimes um particularly about their looks yeah he was so rude about bailey's wife's looks yeah so all all that being said um he's a very mixed bag when it comes to the portrayal of women um but yeah he does avoid some of the more egregious uh, stereotypes that a lot of genre fiction of a certain age fall into i don't know what it was but there was some book i tried to read when i was maybe 12 um and i feel like the first female character that is introduced is like described as this like dumb but very busty half-dressed alien lady or something and like I know that the thing that really bothered me was one of the first things that happens is she's like super emotional and the guy just like slaps her and then kisses her. And it's like, I hate this. I hate the slap and then kiss. I hate it. I hate it so much. Why is it in so much of this crap? And I didn't finish reading the book because I was so annoyed. I don't think that's enough to pinpoint what this book was, but (laughs) it's not. not. I was was waiting for any, uh, telltale thing but it's sadly not specific enough no i know yeah anyway yeah yeah 
Yeah, our, our, our only real, like, significant female character in, in Caves of Steel is, is Bailey's wife, Jessie. And yeah, she... There are moments where she almost becomes more interesting. Yeah, I suspected her pretty early on. Um, A, because of her name and how much emphasis they put on her name and her like disappearing for chunks of time. And so I have in my notes like, you know, she's like the ringleader of this this thing and, and turned out not to be the case necessarily. Uh, but yeah, she does. Um, there's a point early on when Bailey brings Daniil back to their apartment. Um, because Daniel has to stay with him, uh, and introduces Jesse to Daniel and is like, "This is my new partner." Does not say the robot thing, and and then she goes away for a while, um, and then comes back later and is like, "Daniel's a robot, isn't he?" Oh yeah, that was so suspicious. Like at that point, we knew that Daniel had fooled Bailey. But I was, I was like, my hope at that point has always been that it would be like, oh no, Jesse's actually just like way more observant than Bailey, at least when it comes to people, perhaps. Um, but, but no, she actually got the information uh, elsewhere because she's part of a medievalist group, uh, but, but not one of the terrorist kind at least according to her. I loved the name of the anti-robot people. I loved them being medievalists. Yeah. It's funny because like to them, what they're really talking about a lot is, you know, more like today, but they refer to it as medieval because as far as they're concerned, we're not that far removed from, you know, knights and castles and stuff historically oh yeah i had a good giggle when they said like medieval new jersey or something and i was like yeah that's so cute yeah because like it's all thousands of years ago to them um and yeah like enderby like certain certain medieval affectations like wearing spectacles uh and having a window in his office windows Oh my How gosh, silly. I will say. At first, I was very impressed with Asimov for uh, having contact lenses in his story. And then he has a scene where Bailey's son is taking out his contacts using a, a like glass suction cup. And I was like, oh, Jesus. These are the most like archaic sounding contact lenses ever. Yeah. This is horrible. Yeah. Yeah, there's still definitely some like moments in this like with many older science fiction things that we can chuckle at now like um uh daniel spends some of the book while bailey is doing other things in like the the police department's archive room where he is shocked to discover they have a computer to search like criminal records and stuff and like like daniel's never heard of a computer basically um, they don't call it a computer, but a, a machine that is meant for doing searches through police records. And it seems like that's still basically the only thing that they use a computer for. 
but there it is. Yeah. And they use a lot of paper, too, for it being several thousand years later than right now. Yeah, I, I think it's probably kind of a matter of, like, what else would they use, right? Um, but, uh, I wonder if it's made of yeast. Is the paper made of yeast? Everything's made of yeast. I know. That's so funny to me. And of course, by the end, the uh, uh, we we also come to discover that like the reason the spacers are even on Earth at all right now, the the reason they have maintained Space Town, is they want to encourage more people from Earth to travel to colonies and stuff because they are having an underpopulation crisis. Um, oh yeah. That was the part where they sort of like lost my thinking that they were the good guys. Yeah. I, I think an interesting thing that happens in this book is that like we, you spend a while of it seeing really intimately the city and especially now a lot of like the city's perspective seems super backwards. And, and of course their perspective on robots is explicitly characterized that way right like we as readers are supposed to feel that robots are cool um yeah but then they start talking about how they filter their babies yeah, yeah and spacers are eugenicists for sure and the spacers are like wait a minute you just let like all of your babies live like no matter if they're defective and i was like "Ooh, this is bad this is real bad oh spacers no yeah so so the uh the outcome being all human society in this setting sucks. You just have to decide if you want robots or children. That's the decision. I I um, feel like the robots are the better people <laughs> <laughs> in this situation. Not as like a replacement for, uh, I don't know, maybe just as a replacement for the decision makers. <laughs> I also found it very icky that even the the roboticist guy i forgot his name dr g g name um doesn't really talk to daniel he talks to bailey asking permission to like inspect daniel or touch daniel and i'm like wow even the guys that like the robots still treat the robots like crap yeah there's no there's no robot agency in this at all yeah, there's definitely, robots are definitely, yeah, tr still treated as, as, as objects. And like the, you know, Daniil being made to look human and, and designed to behave at least passively as a human is not some high-minded, like, let's create, like, sentient life. It's, the spacers wanted to be able to have a robot that could, like, spy on the city basically um they, they they basically wanted to be able to build a bunch of human humanoid robots um that look human and just kind of like filter them into the city population to like quietly encourage a pro pro immigration to space uh mentality and that plan was just kind of like fouled up by Enderby killing the guy who was making the robots. Um, so they quickly downloaded justice into Daniil's brain. 
now if you like go looking for Asimov's robot series there's like an enormous swath of stuff mini novels lots of short stories things that are kind of strung together to a certain degree but not um not necessarily saying following the same story but um there were two more books that follow bailey and daniel oh nice um, i wasn't sure that, if they were gonna be uh, for their characters that's good to know yeah so uh the the sequel to the case of seals the naked sun um that that is bailey and daniel Oh, uh, The Naked Sun was uh, released in 1957, so a few years later. Basically, The Caves of Steel uh, was Asimov's most successful novel to date at the time. Um, I, I do think it predated, like, Foundation, which I think is probably the novel he's best known for. But um, at the point in his career where he wrote The Caves of Steel, um, it, it was far and away the most successful novel he had written. So a sequel was a logical step. So a few years later, uh, The Naked Son picks up uh, Bailey and Daniil for another story. And then some years down the line, in 1983, The Robots of Dawn uh, is the third Bailey and Daniil story. Um so it's a, there's essentially a trilogy that are specifically following these two and that take the form of, of mystery stories. Um, I've read all of those, but I haven't reread either of the sequels, and I intend to fix that sometime soon. Um, there are also a whole slew of robot stories that are in this same world, um, most notably the stuff that's in iRobot. Uh, but there's others and eventually in um robots and empire which is another novel that ultimately kind of ties the robot series to the rest of what is called asimov's a future history um essentially uh, asimov had these sort of three different broad series of stories and novels uh the robot stuff the galactic empire stuff and uh, most famously the foundation stuff and in a couple places notably robots and empire uh he links all all three of these big things to being in the same setting essentially but they are like thousands of years removed from each other asimov was a was an interesting dude um he uh his family immigrated from russia when he was very young uh in uh, 1923 um he was born approximately 1920 um so he was an infant and in a convenient tie-in with the hardy boys episode uh he actually when he was young started writing um not like commercially but started writing when he was 11 and mimicked uh the rover boys which were i believe another one of the series done by the stratmeyer syndicate um so (laughs) the stratmeyer syndicate sounds like a bad guy group in some book or something i yeah every time you say it i'm like I'm expecting you to then go off about how there was some horrible thing they did. Well, I guess it depends on, you know, if you if you think the Hardy Boys were good for literature. <laughs> um, 
he he grew up in Brooklyn. His family owned candy stores where they also had like magazine racks and stuff, and that's where he discovered like pulp sci-fi magazines. Um and uh you know, once once he was a bit older, he literally went to the offices of Astounding Science Fiction to ask a question. And then um, a short time later, personally submitted his first story uh, called Cosmic Corkscrew. And then editor John W. Campbell, who would become a significant force in Asimov's development, uh, personally rejected it and told him why. Um, but from that point forward, they met on a regular basis and, uh, Campbell had a lot of influence on Asimov's development and, and would eventually buy stories from him. Campbell wrote Who Goes There, which is the story upon which the thing is based. Um, I don't know how faithful the thing is as a, as an adaptation, but, uh, it's based on that. Um, so Asimov then went into college. He started in zoology, which I didn't know. I thought that was kind of neat, uh, but didn't want to dissect things. So he switched to chemistry. Um, he was, because he was Jewish and uh, the, the 30s and 40s were terrible, uh, he had to attend the part of Columbia that was for Jewish and Italian kids because Columbia had to admit a certain number of like these ethnicities and stuff, but they didn't want to let them in the normal Columbia. He ultimately, after uh, some other things, he, he couldn't get into medical school. Uh, it's unclear if that had anything to do with racial profiling. Uh, and so instead got a master's in um philosophy or, or a master's rather in i think some kind of chemistry and a doctorate in philosophy and became a professor of biochemistry um which he did until he got to the point that he was making so much more money off of his writing than off of having a job um that he that he stopped doing that um he's best known for his science fiction and certainly a lot of his early stuff is science fiction, but he also wrote many other kinds of fiction, mystery fiction in particular. Uh, part of the reason that caves of steel takes the form it does is that, uh, another editor that he sometimes submitted to, to named, uh, Horace gold was like, you really should make a novel out of these robot ideas. Cause you've got all of these short stories you've published uh, throughout the forties that uh, that are about robots and everybody likes those you should make a novel and asimov was like i don't know what it would be about and gold was like well you like mysteries make it a mystery and then he did um it's a case of steel was published uh in serial form in uh the, the magazine galaxy which uh, gold was the editor of um it was it was published in three parts and then uh that was in 1953 released in 1954 as like a, a novel um complete so uh so yeah he, he's he's written a ton of science fiction that's what he's known for he does have some 
mystery novels and stories and stuff out there as well. He also wrote a number of textbooks and a number of books that are like science popularization. I know I had several books when I was a kid that were like Asimov's planets. And it was like a book about the planets, you know, not nonfiction, et cetera. Um, depending on how you count, he is the author of some 500 books and stories. Um, he was astoundingly prolific. Um, I already touched on him being a serial harasser. Uh, he also like definitely cheated on his multiple spouses on numerous occasions. Um, so, so he wasn't necessarily a good dude, um, at least when it came to fidelity and women. Uh, and then, um, died in 1992 at the age of 72 of, uh, uh, reportedly kidney failure. Although his family has said later on that he had contracted HIV prior to that. And I'm not sure if that had anything to do with his death. Um, but but he had apparently been uh, fighting HIV for a number of years prior to his to his death. Other things in the robot series, notably iRobot, ha have been adapted more. Case of Steel has seen relatively little adaptation. Um, the BBC did an adaptation as part of a series, a TV series called Story Parade, which I sounded like was an anthology series um, in 1964. Um, that one is apparently mostly lost. There's there's not uh, there's only a few segments that still exist. Um, Peter Cushing was Bailey, <laughs> which I have a hard time wrapping my head around. Um, and the adaptation was done by Terry Nation, who people not me might be like, aha, that guy, because um, he's the creator of Doctor Who's Daleks. Oh, okay. I'm not enough of a Doctor Who fan to have known that, but uh, I found it and I was like, this will be meaningful to somebody. <laughs> I guess I just don't picture Bailey as being like that skeletal, but I guess I'm picturing Peter Cushing as old. Yeah, I don't know what Peter Cushing was like in 1964. I'm going to Google him. But, but who knows? Um, BBC Radio 4 did an adaptation in 1989. was a radio adaptation. Uh... And then, most importantly of all, in 1988, many elements of the plot were adapted into Isaac Asimov's Robots, the VCR game. What? Yep. There's an adaptation of this, which is one of those VCR games that you would, you know, have a VHS along with game stuff playing the game it was like a mystery game where you would watch stuff happening and then sometimes you'd be prompted to like open up clue packets or whatever and you're trying to solve the mystery along with bailey as near as i can tell it exists in its entirety on youtube the video part um i haven't really been able to dig up like the uh other components that would have been in the game um, I haven't watched all of it. I watched the first six minutes or so. It's clearly very cheap. Um, and and <laughs> that that is what our Sammy looks like. Oh my god! He's clearly just like they took a trash can or something, wrapped it up in some 
something oh, gray. Oh, this poor little robot. Yeah. Uh, it clearly a bit a bit cheap. Um, well, look at the picture I just sent you of oh, yeah. Peter Cushing. He does not look right for this at all. Yeah, so uh, adaptation's not, not a lot of note uh, of this particular story. Um, That's a shame. This I feel like this deserves a, a good adaptation. They did just recently do, I forget who it was. Was it Amazon, maybe? Somebody just recently did a, a streaming series based on Foundation. I haven't watched it. So I don't know how it's how good it is or or how well it's done, but perhaps you know, perhaps that's a sign that they'll get around to maybe some other Asimov stuff. Uh, certainly, like prestige sci-fi for streaming services is really prestige sci-fi and fantasy for streaming services is having kind of a good time right now. So, you know, maybe maybe sometime soon. If you had to add a fourth law of robotics, what would it be? I mean, I'm probably always going to be on the side of robots here. So my fourth law of robotics would be something about more agency. Um, Maybe my fourth law would be that um, a robot is allowed to always tell the truth, even if somebody has ordered them to such a silence. Yeah. It's not bad. Robots all, must always be honest. Well, not that they must always or be honest, caveat. just that like they, they're allowed to be honest even if somebody has said, hey, kill this guy. Or, or not kill this guy. Bring me a gun and then don't tell anyone about it. Like, yeah. That would have been able to solve some stuff. <laughs> it's just not fair how the rules make it that they're just... They can't say anything. It's not fair. It's unclear to me what would have happened if Bailey had asked our Sammy. Like, did he do a thing? Bailey just didn't know to ask. Like, that's, that's I presume, why Enderby offed our Sammy. Yeah. Because theoretically, according to the laws, um, There, there may have been some some permutation of asking Sammy for that information, that would have that Sammy would have been bound to answer truthfully and like give up give up Enderby. Yeah, um, I really love looking back on that very first chapter now. How much Asimov set up just everything in that first chapter. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking specifically about how Bailey like lectured Enderby on the way that he gives our Sammy orders mm-hmm. and how that really like explained to us information we needed to know about how they follow orders exactly. And if you forget to tell them to like come back, they, they won't come back. Like a lot of these details are seated in there. And then a lot of the stuff in between is kind of, it's not, it's not meaningless, right? It's not, Bailey just like chasing his own tail down dead ends that don't go anywhere because they all go somewhere character wise or setting wise at least. Um, and of course, like the the destruction of our Sammy is important to Bailey being able to prove anything, but the pieces were largely in place pretty early. 
Well, this is why I am generally like the perfect reader for a mystery book because I don't put things together. <laughs> I, oh, I, I'm generally pretty bad. I get like wild stuff. suspicions. Like if I scroll through my notes, I've got, let's see, in order of when I start suspecting people. Um, da, 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 da. The wife is involved in something. The kid who wanted to poke his head back in the office looks real suspicious. And then my very last note that I took at the last chapter was, oh, fuck, I hadn't even bothered contemplating the commissioner had done it. I just, I'm like Bailey. I just keep accusing the wrong people. Yeah. Well, and and I know the first time that I read it, for sure, I would not have dreamed that it was the commissioner. Um. So, like, it's one of those things that I, I kind of wish I could come at it without knowing who it was. Um, but I remembered who it was. Yeah. I didn't necessarily remember every, like, piece of evidence for that, but I, did, I, I remembered that it was Enderby. Yeah. Well, you're smarter. I mean, I'd read it before. <laughs> Fair. So, uh, we rate these books out of um, uh, on our giant peaches scale out of five. How many giant peaches do you think Asimov's The Caves of Steel gets? Oh, this is getting a five. Getting a five. I, in in my in my note, I have this is one of the most enjoyable books I've read in a very long time. I'm super glad about that. I'm, I'm thrilled. And uh, I figured you'd like it. I'm kind of sure I'm kind of sitting here thinking like, of all the stuff we've got down in the pipe. What else is going to deserve a five? I don't know. Probably stuff I've not read yet. But definitely this. So I might as well give something a five. Especially with as much as I like. You got to do it eventually. And even though it had some icky icky concepts, it it was not as icky about them as some things. Especially like for the time. And I know I, I, I hate the phrase like product of its time or whatever, but as a product of its time, it wasn't as icky as a lot of things. So I'm not docking at any points for the ickiness yeah. because it's actually probably fairly progressive for its time. Well, and to be sure, like some of the things like the eugenics policies of the spacers and stuff aren't necessarily presented as positive. Oh yeah, no, I meant more like, women being painted as oh, as sure, sure, sure. silly and stupid and emotional. And yeah. 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 I think um I think I am at like four and a half, maybe. Four to four and a half. Alright. Maybe. Is Somewhere it, is it just, I liked it a lot. Like is it just because like some of the magic isn't there anymore for having no known know. known the killer? No, no, I'm not really sure. I still really enjoyed reading it. You know, it's it's not it's not a difficult read by any means, but it does like feel fairly substantial nonetheless because there's a lot of talking about concepts and things. Yeah, there were, there was there was a lot of like really cool philosophy stuff. There was a lot of really cool pseudoscience speech, which you know some of which is even like based in concepts that he clearly understood and that had actually been a question of mine was how much of a basis of science did he actually have 
before he started writing because I was like, he talks about sciencey stuff like somebody who's done some science thinking. So, yeah, this this book in particular would have been. Um, I don't know if he was still a, a biochem professor when he wrote this, but he he it was several years after he began as a biochemistry professor. So he um, had multiple degrees in multiple fields, including a doctorate in philosophy, as well as being uh, a, a biochemistry professor at uh, the Boston College of Medicine. Because hmm. sometimes, you know, as somebody with a science background, you read pseudoscience and it's like, this person just like grabbed a bunch of terms they thought yeah. sounded cool and stuck them together. And this this science speak was very rooted and it, it just, it felt natural and knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah. Asimov was very um, privy to the sciences. Uh, and like I said, especially as his career went on, wrote a lot of nonfiction, both in the, in the case of like textbooks and um, mm. in the case of things that were more like science popularization kind of things. Yeah. You know, here's, here's science about things in a, in a, way that is digestible by laymen or by children to like get them interested and so forth so that was definitely a thing that he was very um involved in throughout his life cool well it was pals with carl sagan i think oh <laughs> fun yeah so what are we reading next well, since you had your first pick, that was a, this is not a book that was written for children, but I, as a child, read this. I am doing uh, one of one of mine that's like that. Uh, very different genre, though. We are finally doing uh, the promised thing of uh, sending some Stephen King your way. And... I, I decided to be kind because there were a number of multiple thousand pagers I could have selected that I read first, but I picked Pet Cemetery. It's a little bit of a shorter one, but also was definitely one of the ones that gave me some lasting nightmares for a little while. So Yeah, yeah, I don't, oh. I don't know if you should have read that as a kid. There's a lot of things I shouldn't have done as a kid. That's fair. I, uh, I haven't read any Stephen King aside from on writing, so um, mm. I'm, I'm excited. Well, buckle up. Yep. And the think while you're reading it, Ren read this sort of stuff as a child. That explains a lot. It does. No! <laughs> Spoilers, I'm part of the, I'm like halfway through the book and yeah, a lot of things my Dog Ate My Book Report is hosted and produced by Ren and Brandon, that's us, and edited by the fabulous Derek Phelan. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts were generated by otter.ai. Our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Have a question or a comment for the team? You can find us on our website, which links to all of our socials at dogatemybookreport.blueberry.net. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net or by emailing at dogatemybookreport at gmail. Blueberry doesn't like vowels. But anyway, yeah, we would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. Thanks for listening.